Is mainstream school failing your kids? The pandemic, with all the changes to schooling and daily life, is a moment of opportunity to rethink the educational path that works best for you and for your kids. So the question is, how can we as parents find alternative solutions that aren't necessarily having to do it all ourselves or pay for programs that we can't afford? I'm Jerry Kirk. And I'm Graham Kirk. Join us as we talk with families thriving on their own path We shared practical tips, wins, and challenges they've been through to help you on yours. We interview educational experts and parent entrepreneurs with education solutions for the modern age, so parents wanting a better alternative can make confident, informed choices. Welcome to the Modern Education Movement Podcast. You're ready for change. And so are we. My guest today, Stephen Hall, is a medical doctor who specializes in people with chronic problems that conventional medicine hasn't been able to help. Now, for over 30 years, he has watched his patients heal, sometimes from things that honestly seem impossible. And this happens by addressing the root causes of their pain. Through this process, this has shown him that healing is a process. It's a deep transformational process and not a quick fix. And that healing is a practice that follows the same seven steps, which Dr. Stephen calls the seven tools of healing. He now coaches parents in how to raise their children to have a high level of emotional intelligence so that their children won't need so much healing work later as adults. He's also married to a child education and literature expert and together have four children, several of whom were homeschooled for parts of their education. So I'm really excited to have you on the show today, Dr. Hall. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, I think, you know, right now, especially in the midst of the pandemic and all, mental health or just health in, in general is, is a, a hot topic. A lot of people who are struggling a lot more these days. What are you, what are you noticing in your own practice right now, especially for children and, and families? Well, high levels of stress. You know, almost everybody is getting a taste of what homeschooling is like. Although when we homeschooled our children, they didn't have to like spend five hours on Zoom with a teacher. They were more working on their own that sort of thing. But they still having to hold down their own job while helping their children with their schoolwork. It's just been really stressful. And then, the, of course, the isolation and the unknown about, well, am I going to catch COVID if I go out to the grocery store or whatever? So, yeah, I've just been, um, you know, watching and helping people cope and get through whatever challenges they're facing. Yeah, I think I think our conversation today is, is, is really timely, you know, and, and our focus here on you know, modern education, as I've been discovering on this this amazing journey I've been on since I started this podcast last October, is there's so many parts to that, right? Like I think a lot of us as parents, particularly when we're used to sort of traditional school and whatnot, is we think of education as, you know, mostly academic. But what I've certainly been discovering is so much about, you know, education is is way beyond that. And and honestly that we can't really learn and grow much if we don't have that that strong healthy foundation. So I'd like to ask you, you mean, you talk about in your intro about the importance of emotional intelligence for, for children, for, well, for anyone really. Could you describe a bit, you know, which, what is emotional intelligence maybe for people who aren't familiar with that term? Okay. Yeah. The idea is that, you know, our, our society spends most of its time thinking about what we call cognitive intelligence, and that's what's measured by IQ. And some people think, well, that's the ability to sort of apprehend and, and manipulate data and ideas. Other people think, well, it's, it's the ability to assume certain perspectives, like first-person perspective, second-person perspective, on down. 
But it turns out that developmental psychologists have found upwards of 12 different kinds of intelligences that we all can, can develop. And so there's emotional intelligence, there's kinesthetic intelligence. People have a lot of body intelligence, for example, uh, musical intelligence, uh, interpersonal intelligence. Anyway, so emotional intelligence is one of these sort of like lines of development, you might call it. Unlike cognitive intelligence, where there's not really good data that you can actually increase your cognitive intelligence, although it does, again, develop through, through lines of consciousness, there's a lot of good data that shows you, you can increase your emotional intelligence with practice. And so it turns out that a lot of business consultants, for example, are recommending to their clients that they screen new hires for emotional intelligence as one of their criteria for hiring people. And the reason is they've found that teams work a lot better when those teams are composed of people with high emotional intelligence. So what would someone who has high emotional intelligence, how would, what kind of characteristics would they have? Like, Well, they would have the ability to look inside themselves and actually see how they're feeling in, a, in, a, in an accurate way. So I, I call that you know paying attention to your feelings or becoming aware of how you're feeling. So a person with high emotional intelligence would be able to check in and say, oh yeah, I really am frustrated, or I really am angry, or I really am sad, and, and be able to do that accurately. The second thing they can do is that they can recognize and, and sort of accurately see what other people are feeling and, and sort of their general state of being. So I think of that as, you know, so you'll be able to tell how somebody else is feeling when you're spending time with them. And the third one is that they're able to interact with people in this, you know, authentic and honest way. And so those are the three things I think that, that sort of make up emotional intelligence. And, and, as, and as part of that too, I imagine it's recognizing those, those feelings from a point where then you can make a, a choice as opposed to kind of a, an automatic response, right? You may notice that you're, you're mad, but that you can choose to, you're in a, in a place where you can choose how you want to respond as opposed to being, I guess, in some ways kind of controlled by your, your feelings. Would you say that's the case? Yeah, now that's a really good point because I talk about this quite a bit because I think about a feeling as a messenger. So it's bringing you information. And because it's the messenger, it's not its fault what the, what's, what's in the message. <laughs> So if you can think about your feelings as like the mail carrier or the UPS person or the Federal Express person, right? And, and what you really want is the package that they're bringing you. So, and then they just show up. You don't know when the UPS person's coming, right? They just show up. And, and same with your feelings. If you watch, your feelings just pop up and there they are. You didn't ask them to be there. So turns out you don't actually control your feelings. We have to be able to control our behaviors. So... Like I say, you're, you're not legally liable for how you're feeling quite yet, <laughs> but you are legally liable for your actions. And so there needs to be some kind of gap between how you're feeling and how you're behaving. And, and it turns out that in that gap is your freedom as a human being. Yeah, I'd like to ask you about, you know, what are some of the, I mean, you've, you've been in your practice for, for quite some time now. You've got a, a wealth of knowledge and experience to, to draw from. What are some of the costs of not having strong emotional intelligence? And I'm particularly asking this because I'm, I'm thinking about parents like myself and, and others out there, right? We want the best for our kids. We're excited for their futures. And, you know, they've got so much life ahead of them. What's some of the potential costs of, of our kids not having this strong emotional intelligence as they you know, grow into adults? So first of all, one of the costs as a parent is, you know, how did you learn to speak English? 
you were just immersed in it and you learned it as a toddler, right? And it turns out you learned to parent the exact same way. So unless you do something to change it, you're going to automatically parent the way you got parented. And so if you've ever had a moment where you say something to your kids and you go, oh, that sounds just like my mom's voice coming out of my mouth, then that's a clue that you're on autopilot. Uh, So learning how to parent differently is almost the exact same kind of learning as learning a new language, learning a second language. So it takes work, it takes practice, and you have to focus your attention on it and keep plugging away at it and have an idea of what new parenting you want. That's what I'm trying to teach is, okay, if you're going to, if you don't want to parent the way you got parented, how do you want to parent instead? What, what's more appropriate or healthy parenting? So if you're not in touch with your feelings, you're basically missing all this information. And, and so life is constantly trying to show you who you are. And unless you're paying attention, you're never going to learn. And my definition of healing is finding out who you really are in your heart of hearts and then making choices that fit who you are. If we can teach our children from early ages or whatever age you're starting at, because it's never too late to, to start helping your kids be healthy with feelings, then they'll start getting the information about who they are and they'll know how to make choices that fit them better. What are some of the, the things you're seeing for adults later in life who didn't develop that emotional intelligence earlier on in life? Like, What are some of the kinds of things you see, you see adults dealing with? Well, one of the, the biggest thing I think is addiction, for example. My definition of addiction is feeling management. So whenever we're trying to make our feelings be this way and not be that way, that's an addiction. And so working on a feeling, once you have it, it, it it's like that's way too superficial to get to the real root because that doesn't do anything for what caused that feeling to show up in the first place. And so addictions are a big issue. Right now we're having a whole epidemic of anxiety in our society, and especially amongst the younger people. And anxiety is just a feeling. Well, if you knew how to be healthy with your feelings, you could work with that anxiety and find out what message it's trying to bring and get it to resolve. But without it, you're just caught in anxiety. And then, and depression is just the other side of the coin for anxiety. So if you say there's different definitions for epidemics, and one is like when 20% of the population has it, well, then we definitely have an epidemic of depression as well in our society. And so I think people that are really healthy with their feelings don't get caught in those endless loops of perseverating thoughts and, and, and that sort of thing. And they ha- they're much less prone to fall into addiction and, and develop depression and anxiety. So those are just really quickly some basic things that I see in people who are emotionally healthy. Yeah, that's really helpful to, to see. Uh, and, and really, I would perhaps add that uh, it kind of really limits your possibilities, right, in, in life if you're kind of, if you're not strong, if you're dealing with, you know, as you said, addictions or depression or whatnot, you're it's it's so hard to become the person you really want to be because of these limiting factors. So so what? Right. Um, another clue, another clue, really is people that are working jobs they don't like. Like, how do you even get yourself into those situations? Or people who are in relationships that that aren't really good for them. So again, if you know yourself well, if you're getting the information life is feeding you, you can make uh, more informed and, and better choices for yourself. Yeah, it's interesting you you, you touch on that right and that, that's something I, I struggle with a little bit as well is it, i guess just in observing you know my own kids or others around me is i personally like i'm someone who doesn't like to settle much right i mean i've been an entrepreneur most of my life you know mostly had the, the choice to do what i want to do although i could see at, at times where i was i was settling as well there's also like an issue of, of self-esteem that comes into play when, when 
without a lack of emotional intelligence. So, I mean, like feeling like you're, you don't deserve something better. And so you kind of just settle for whatever life throws your way. Right. And I think of that, like self-esteem, for example, as that's a result of some um, conclusions that you've drawn about yourself and, and beliefs that you've formed about yourself. And it turns out, we, we talked about how feelings are messengers. And generally the message they're trying to bring us is what belief are we holding inside and how are we really working inside? And so it's a really good way to get a handle on those um, emotions. And you know, once you get those emotions, it's a good way to get a handle on those beliefs. And then once you uncover the belief, then you can ask, well, is that belief really true? You know, am I really worthless or do I not deserve to be happy or deserve to have a good job? And generally, you'll be able to see, well, no, that belief isn't true. And oftentimes, just seeing it will help the belief shift. But if you're just trying to make your feelings change, you'll never uncover the beliefs. And until the beliefs change, the same feelings will just keep popping up inside of you over and over and over again. So so feelings, I think, are the key to get into that. You know, most of the beliefs that make up our worldview are actually in our unconscious part of our mind. And they're just in there. And we see the world and we think this is reality. <laughs> but, you know, two people can hear the same political speech and have a really different response to that speech. And that's because they're carrying different beliefs. Yeah, and I'm such a big believer in that, too. I went through some, some training through a company called Landmark a few years ago. And, and that, among other things, I mean, that's one of the benefits of, I guess, being an entrepreneur is you're constantly working on yourself. You know, it just that really, really your thoughts create your reality. And, you know, I remember how hearing... A lot of professional athletes will just reframe like anxiety and things into excitement, right? So that they can perform, you know, it's, it's the same, same situation, just declaring it to be something different enables them to, to perform. And so I'd love to then talk a bit more about how parents can support their children in, in developing this emotional intelligence so that they can thrive in, in their, in their development. Well, the, the first step, I mean, hopefully the parent has healthy emotional intelligence or high level of emotional intelligence. And if not, the first step is to, to work on your own emotional intelligence. And, and really I wondered if you were going to say that. <laughs> that, <laughs> that. That actually was my next question. So thank you for sharing that. So as we were talking earlier, I put together a class called um, Strong Foundations, um, teaching your children to be healthy with their feelings. And how I think about it is like, they're really dog owner training classes, you know, and they're really teaching you how to be with your dog. And maybe you can teach your dog a few things in the process, but until you understand dogs, you can't really do that very well. And so this class is actually like a, a parent feeling training class. And then, and then they can teach their children once they know it themselves. So, so the first thing of course, is to become practice becoming aware of how you're feeling and, and then there's ways you can talk to your children about helping them become aware. And those ways depend on their developmental stage, you know. So you would talk to a seven-year-old differently than you would talk to a three-year-old. Or you'd talk to a 15-year-old differently than you'd talk to a 10-year-old. And, and the class goes through all the, the differences in the different stages of the childhood development and gives examples of, you know, how you might help the child with this issue or help the child with that issue. So becoming aware of the feeling... And then the next step, which is really, really important, and I, it took me a long time to understand how important this step was, but you actually have to acknowledge the feeling and, and, and say, yep, there it is. It's, it's here, and I'm feeling it, and it's here. Because any kind of repression or denial actually reinforces the feeling just to be there. And you've probably heard that saying, what you resist persists. 
that was exactly in my as you were talking about that that was showing up in my in my thoughts in, yeah in your thoughts yeah and and it turns out that's actually just that saying captures a, a quality of how consciousness works so because your consciousness flows wherever you're paying attention and your consciousness is what makes you creative and so whatever you're paying attention to you're creating and it turns out that resistance and denial and repression are actually forms of attention and so whatever you're repressing and denying and trying to squash down you're actually feeding and making it stronger and that's why if you like if you're angry and you're trying to make yourself not be angry <laughs> how well does that work <laughs> exactly so you talk about how parent it's, it's really about parents really focusing on themselves first there's a lot about teaching our kids strong emotional intelligence mostly just about modeling our, our own lives and, and how we're doing things? Well, hopefully, if you already have good emotional intelligence, like maybe you were raised well, or you've worked on yourself a lot, then that's good. Yeah, you're modeling how you are. But what you can also model for your children is how to learn and change and grow by doing that yourself. Yeah, that's kind of what I mean here. Like, like say, you know, say, um, you know, a parent was to sign up for the program. And, you know, and I'm also just honestly looking at my own kids who are teens, right? So they're at that age where they're not necessarily looking for their, their parents for all the advice and guidance, right? To kind of figure out their own, their own past. In some ways, yeah, it's I feel, just a different style. At least, at least I found I've been more effective by saying less and more about modeling more, right? About how I deal with things, how I show up, how I respond has a much greater impact than talking about how to respond, right? Or how to do this, you know, I'm mean, sure there's there's lots of reasons for that, but my my sense is part of that's just you know just age. So well, teens tend to be exquisitely sensitive to what they see as hypocrisy, and they'll rub it in your face. So if you're saying do as I say, not as I do, they're they're not going to stand for that very well. Uh, they won't respect you for that. So you're right. So being able to actually just be that way yourself and be that model that speaks so much louder than anything you can say. All right, so we talked about first um, sort of becoming aware of your feelings and then from there really acknowledging those feelings. Acknowledge those feelings. And then the next step is to look that feeling right in the eye and say, okay, I see you, I feel you. Can you please take me to your roots? And that's how you get the, the, the male person to actually hand you the mail. You know, that's how you get the feeling to actually hand you the information it's bringing. And, and then you get still inside and see what rises up. And, and that's the part that gets better with practice, that being able to ask the question and then get still and wait for the answer. And so I've seen that there's two kinds of roots. So one root might be you'll have a memory of some experience you went through when, where that feeling was first generated in your body. And so, for example, I was, I remember one time when I was first starting to learn these, these things and I was working on myself and I forget what issue I was working on even, but I do remember clearly this image of sort of being up in the corner of this room and looking down on this six month old baby lying in a, in a crib and there's nobody around. It's like the baby was just, was just totally alone. And the baby was trying to like reach out to like, Where's my mom? Where's my dad? And, and it turns out when I was six months old, my mom went into the hospital for some surgical procedures and was gone for several days. But what I saw was that what I decided at six months of age is that, well, I'm alone, so I have to do everything myself. I have to take care of myself. That was what I concluded. And so for me, I mean, it was a big deal to pay somebody to change the oil in my car, 
you know, or to, or to cut my hair or to, I mean, it's like I had to do, I wire my own house. I do my own sheetrocking. I do my, you know, it's like, and so that was a, that was a conclusion that, yeah, it is, you know, to not be able to accept help or ask for help. And that was a conclusion I drew at six months of age. And I had no conscious knowledge that that was there. But so when you ask to be taken to the roots, it turns out that the vast majority of the major beliefs that make up your worldview were in place in your psyche by the time you're seven years old. And, and that's why they call those first seven years the formative years. And what's going on there is that your unconscious mind is kind of like a tape recorder with a record button on. And there's no filters. There's no discernment in place. And so one experience can create this conclusion that can last a whole lifetime. And so how many experiences have you had by the time you're seven years old? Right. And as you said, you know, it, it could be the on, on the outside, it might seem like the simplest thing, like not, not a big deal or anything. But just how that, that moment got processed can have such a, a pivotal difference. Mm-hmm. And you never know what your child hears from what you say, because it depends on their temperament. It depends on what conclusions they already have in there. Because once you draw a conclusion, it becomes like a lens that you peer through to see the world. And, and so they start to accumulate and build on each other. And I mean, a good example, I was working with this uh, young man, he's like about 33, and he came in with uh, a diagnosis of mixed connective tissue disorder, which is sort of a general term that says he's inflamed all over the place. And we said, well, can let's, let's, so one of the things I do with the work I do is have people have a conversation with their body about, well, why are you doing this? And what, what are you trying to put across? And so when we had him go back to the root of the connective tissue disorder, he had this vision again of himself when he was three years old and he was standing in his uh, older brother's bedroom. He, his brother was seven and his parents and aunts and uncles were standing around his brother's bed and he just breathed his last breath from after a year of fighting childhood leukemia. So you can kind of imagine the, the emotion in the room, right? And one of his aunts looked down at his brother and said, well, at least he's not suffering anymore. And which is, you know, sounds like a completely compassionate thing to say, right? But what the three-year-old heard, and he had no conscious memory of this, you know, he's only three. But what the three-year-old heard was, well, if I want to live, I need to suffer. And so his mixed connective tissue disorder was making darn sure that he was going to stay alive. So just to, just to, I just want to unpack that a little bit. So, so, so this fellow comes in with all of this, this inflammatory issues and the root of that, as it turned out, was a belief that was formed at the subconscious level when he was three. And once he saw that that's not at all what his aunt meant, because he was able to see it now as an adult, then he was able to convince the three-year-old that, no, he misunderstood it, and he doesn't have to suffer to stay alive. And his mixed connective tissue disorder went away. So, you know, I, I'm naturally a little curious there. I know we've talked a little bit about... I have a daughter who's had some some ongoing issues with just trying to play her violin and and whatnot. And I remember you you'd mentioned in our, in our chat a little bit about how you could talk to your your body to to try to find out about the pain. Uh, I'd love to explore a little bit about what what is what does that mean exactly. And then and then maybe the next step in what our conversation here is you know now that we've found the root um, in this process you've been talking about is then how do we address it? Okay. So what we just talked about with the feeling where you become aware of the feeling, you acknowledge the feeling, and you ask the feeling, I call those the three A's. And and you can apply those three A's to an emotional feeling, and you can also apply those three A's to a physical feeling. Because physical and emotional are just two sides of the same coin. 
So if you look, every physical feeling you have has an emotion associated with it, and every emotion you have has some kind of physical correlate in your body. So I encourage my patients to become aware of both tracks of information. So people ask, well, where's that anger stored in your body? You know, that's that's the kind of question about that. So, so if you're starting with body symptom, you can literally go to the pain and say, okay, pain, I'm here, I'm listening. Can you just give it to me in English? And then again, you get still and see what, what comes up. It does seem to work better when they're sort of in a, I think of like an altered state of awareness, when they're really relaxed and focused. And technically that might be a, like a state of hypnosis, but there's just really a, a state of open receptivity. And so if you can get your daughter where she's calm and relaxed, maybe sitting back in a recliner or some comfortable chair and say, okay, you know, so where's your pain? Like, is it in the wrist or hand or do you know where her pain is for her? It has varied. Sometimes it's been the wrist. Sometimes it's been more up in the shoulder, you know, so she's been like trying to, you know, adjust her violin position and things like that. But yeah, it's, yeah, I'd say both, both wrists and, and shoulder. Okay. So whatever pain she's experiencing in that moment, you can focus on the pain. So the first thing is like ask her to describe the pain. Like, is it sharp? Is it dull? Is it throbbing? Like, how would you describe to somebody how that feels? And, and then you can ask them, and how big is the pain? How much area in their body does it encompass? And and so most people, that's still on pretty physical, literal level, right? So most people can answer those questions. But then you can you can transition to the more symbolic level by then saying, okay, and what color is the pain? And surprisingly, most people will answer. You know, it's red or it's yellow. Or Then you can say, okay, if that pain could borrow your voice, what would it say to you? What does it want? So the idea is to try to get the pain's side of the story. Because believe it or not, we just tell our bodies what to do. We never actually listen in our society. So by getting my patients to actually be quiet and listen and get their body side of the story, that's helped more of my patients with chronic illness than anything I ever learned in medical school. So I'm thinking back to what you said earlier. So in a lot of ways, pain is just another messenger, just like feelings are. Yep, it's a physical feeling. Uh-huh. And so the same, the same rules apply. So, so you can dialogue or you can, you know, open to whatever message the physical feeling is bringing you in the same way you can open to whatever message the emotional feeling is bringing you. Same tools. Try it with a headache. Try it if you have an ache in your knee or whatever, you know. And it doesn't really matter what caused it. Like, I mean, you sprain your ankle, of course it's going to hurt. But, but you can still listen to that pain and, and learn things from it, even though you know what happened because I twisted my ankle. But why did you twist your ankle right then? Not, and not the day before, not the day after. You know, what's going on that it happened right then? So there's always something to learn. Yeah, this is really fascinating. Um, I'm really enjoying our conversation. So at, at that point then, how does that knowledge then, or an awareness turn into to healing then, to ch- shift away from that when, once you have that awareness of, of the root? Once you have awareness of the root, so then that goes back to the function of beliefs. And beliefs are basically just stable thought patterns in our mind. And they have two jobs. So we already talked about one job, how they're the literally the lenses that we peer through to see the world. And did you ever read The Wizard of Oz? Not just watch the movie, but read the book? No, no, I haven't. Because in the book, he did something that they didn't do in the movie that I really liked. So, you know, when Dorothy and the Scarecrow and everybody gets to the Emerald City and that wacky guy opens the door and lets him into the antechamber, his job is to lock a pair of green sunglasses onto everybody's head. 
And then he opens the door and lets them out into the Emerald City. And everybody in the Emerald City is wearing green sunglasses. Isn't that cool? I mean, and that's why it's the Emerald City, right? So what Frank Baum did with that was just really show how our lenses determine what we perceive as reality, right? And so it's really pretty cool way of doing it. But we all have a whole rack of lenses that we're peering through to see the world. And how we see the world is going to determine what feelings come up from our experiences. And so that's why the feelings, the messenger, if you, if you turn it backwards, you know, the feelings, the messenger leading you to those lenses. And so once you uncover the lens, then you can, like I said, is this lens really true from some kind of higher, I think of like a spiritual truth. We all have our own personal truth, but then how does that compare with spiritual truth? So, but the second, and this is more important, I think the second job of beliefs is they're literally the gatekeepers to our creative flow. And that's why Goethe said, man is as he believes. As he believes, so he is. And obviously I think that's true for women too. And, and Henry Ford said something like, you know, if you think you can, you can. If you think you can't, you're right. And so beliefs are really important in how you, what, what you're able to create, not just in your life, but also as your life. And so there's actually some belief is, is determining everything that you've created in your life. So there's another saying that says, if you want to know what somebody believes, just look at their life because it's literally an outpicturing of their beliefs. So there's some kind of belief that's letting the consciousness of this illness through and becoming your life. And so what I've been led to observe from all these years of work, like trying to get to the root, and I spent years peeling down to the root, like, I mean, is the root cause really the diet you're eating? Well, it seems like it at first, but no, your your diet, how you're eating is a behavior. Underneath every behavior is a motivation, but underneath your motivation is your worldview, right? So I call beliefs your determinants of conscious expression. And unless you're working to change those determinants of conscious expression, you're not working on the root cause. You're working to change what's already been created. So most of our symptomatic treatments in both conventional and alternative medicine are just working to change what's already been created. Unless you're working to change the process of how that creation works, it's just going to keep coming back in one way or another until you do that, make that change on the deeper level. So you let the feeling take you to the belief and you let the belief align with higher truth and then generally the body can heal because it turns out your beliefs also determine the majority of your biochemistry in your body and bruce lipton wrote a whole book on that called the biology of beliefs so it's really fascinating how important these beliefs are and how much of our beliefs we just leave on autopilot because they're in their unconscious mind and we just we just live our life the way we've been programmed and we never actually step up and take our freedom as a human being we never claim our, our freedom we just live as automatons. And that's what I want to try to help people change. Yeah, that's a that's a great segue into, you know, this this program that you you've put together then. So let's just dive into that a little bit and kind of talk a little bit about how it's structured, you know, what kind of what's involved, what sort of because the other thing too is it, it sounds it makes a lot of sense to me, it aligns with with my own journey, with my own practices, right? That it, it all comes down to who what's your what's your identity from your identity forms your beliefs, right? And which then influences your behaviors and which then leads to certain actions and, and results. So yeah, like even in, in the Atomic Habits book, which is uh, by James Clear, it's a book I, I found really, really helpful. His thing always at the, at the beginning is, is you start with your identity. If you want to lose weight, well, it's about forming the belief that you're a healthy person, right? And so as a healthy person, you're going to act in congruence with who you've declared you're going to be. You know, it all starts there. So 
you know, I'd, I'd love to dive in a little bit then to, into your, your program here just for our parents who are listening. I mean, because the other thing too, right, is I think for a lot of us, we feel like, yeah, this all makes sense. And, you know, it's, yeah, we should work on this and whatever. And, and then we're like, oh, how much work is this going to be? Or, you know, or, you know, it's like we want it. And yet it's like, oh, my life is already crazy. How am I going to fit this in? Or, you know, how much effort is it going to take? And uh, will I, you know, will, even, will I even stick with it? You know, so many things we start and we don't finish. So um, how, do, how do you help people overcome those, those blockers? Well, yeah, the nice thing is um, the, it's sort of the how this approach works. So if you try to force yourself to change, that often doesn't work. You just get in a, like I call it an arms race with yourself. But what happens when you practice a skill? Well, I mean, if you keep with it, I mean, over time it gets, it gets easier. You, see, you start to see results that builds, you know, motivation to, to continue. Yeah, and once your skills improve, what you're just naturally able to do improves or changes, right? So rather than trying to force yourself to heal, try to force yourself what to think and how to feel, that, that, just, that approach has never worked. But if you practice the skills of healing, then the healing you're just naturally able to do gets better. And, and that's, that's the beauty of this approach. So we're not trying to make you be any different. We're just helping you develop these skills of and that's what the seven tools are. They're basically this, I could have called them seven skills of healing might be more accurate, but you know, even having a tool, you still have to be skillful applying the, the tool. So, so the class is it's online. It's uh, all self, you know, take it at your self pace and it's into nine, like 45 minute modules or something like that. And we break it down. I think the first class we talk about emotional intelligence and why that's important and you know, the benefits to your children if they have emotional intelligence and I think we use the word healthy with feelings, not emotional intelligence in the class. But, and then we go through, well, what is a feeling and, and beliefs and just basically the stuff we just talked about. That's like in the second class, I think. And then we go through the different ages. So we start at actually getting pregnant because your, your fetus, the fetus inside of you is having experiences too and drawing conclusions even before you're born. So I've had people when they go back to the root of their problem was they'd go back to when they were a three month old fetus inside their mom. And they're drawing conclusions to what was going on in their, her mom, in their mom's life. So by the time you're born, you're already nine months old. And then you have your whole birth experience and newborn experience and infant and toddler. And, and so the vast majority of those conclusions that you draw during those years, you're not going to remember, but they're in there. So, but we talk about, well, what, how do you meet the needs of, you know, between zero and one? And for example, my belief is you cannot spoil a child before one year of age. Their needs are just their needs. And you just need to meet them. You know, they're not trying to manipulate you. And, but what makes a child manipulative is if their needs aren't met and they have to learn how to cajole you to meet their needs. So if you just automatically meet their needs, they never learn to manipulate you to get their needs met. But then when they're a toddler, then you can start to coach them on some delayed gratification a little bit. You know, I know you're hungry now, but we'll be home in 10 minutes and I can, we can get something to eat then. A nine month old is not going to understand that. (laughs) But but a 15-month-old or 18-month-old can. So it just goes through like developmentally how you, you help your child and meet their needs and developmental needs, but then also help them with their feelings. So it's in the toddler years that you start to give your child a vocabulary for their feelings because you can often tell by looking at them how they're feeling. It's like, oh, you, you seem really frustrated right now. Let me help you with this. Or you seem really upset that Susie just pulled your hair or whatever, you know. So you can um, give their names to their feelings. And then after three, they can name their own feelings usually and and start to talk to you. But the idea is just to try to keep the conversation going and 
help them learn how to just tell you how they're feeling and then you can help them resolve it and problem solve and and that sort of thing but trying to tell your child how they should be feeling generally does not work if you want your child to be healthy i can vouch for that or even just not acknowledging or not seeing it as important yeah as you said just diminishing feelings so we give lots of examples like okay if, if this is happening to your child this is you know how we suggest you might want a word and we give exercises to do to help the parents like okay you want to have a list in your mind ahead of time of of choices you're going to offer your child in these situations so you don't have to try to think on your feet too much in the moment you know but how do you engage your child's cooperation it's it's time to get ready for school and leave the house well and they don't want to well how do you engage their cooperation and without stomping all over their feelings and so the goal of the class is i I really like the goal of parenting to be that your child grows up to be humane and strong so there's this image in our society that if children are aware their feelings are going to be all touchy-feely and just be milk toast you know and and that's actually not really true the people who know themselves well and have healthy relationship with their feelings can be incredibly strong powerful people so that's the idea of raising your child to be humane so they can be aware of other people's needs and other people's feelings and and help out make the world a better place and then also strong so they don't get walked all over and that that sort of thing so for example you know toddlers are just natural born learners right they're they're like a dry sponge dropped in a bucket of water they they just soak up stuff and how do you keep that love of learning alive and that was one of the things we worked on with our kids. And my oldest daughter actually wrote about that process, what it was like for her to experience that in her um, college thesis. And she got into every university she applied to, and she was homeschooled in high school. She got into Stanford. She got into Brown. She got into, I forget, she she applied to like seven different schools and got into every one of them. So because I, I think they loved that idea of, Man, this this kid got raised with keeping their their curiosity alive and keeping their love of learning alive. And when you go to so many times when you go to school, you just start getting spoon fed stuff. I'm sure you've talked a lot about this in your your education podcast. I don't. That's but but again, if you can if you can have your child be really healthy with their feelings, they can keep that spark alive in themselves, and they can learn all kinds of you know follow their interests and learn all kinds of things. And as you said earlier, you know, it doesn't really matter what age your your kids are. This is something that um, that can benefit benefit them, and and also us as parents, right? As you said, it, it starts with starts with the parents, starts with work, working on ourselves, and then from that capacity, as we build the skills and apply them to ourselves, we can then uh, help our our kids um, right grow them too. And I usually so let's say your kids are already teenagers, and when you come to the class, I do encourage parents to go ahead and listen at least listen to the earlier aged classes because we lay out these concepts and sort of build on them and so then you'll have that foundation when you get to your teen years but obviously be using different different tools like you know a five-year-old you can pretty much tell them what to do but what happens you try to tell a 15 year old what to do yeah it doesn't work very well right so at some point your relationship with your child has to shift from telling them what to do to really just being in relationship with them and the relationship you develop with your teenager sort of sets the tone for the relationship you have with them for the rest of their life. So we talk about that and we give, again, exercises and suggestions. And, you know, there's ways to help engage a teenager's cooperation, to help a teenager start to take responsibility for their actions. You know, it's a big decision when you 
you know, teenager gets in the car by themselves and drives off alone for the first time. It's like, what? <laughs> you know, I hope I've done, I hope I've laid a good foundation by now. Right. Well, Dr. Hollow. So yeah, I mean, just to see we're kind of wrapping up on our, our time here. So um, is there any, anything, anything else you want to, to share with parents as we, as we, anything more you want to say to them as, as they kind of navigate their, their journey? Yeah, I think, I mean, the most important thing is to know that, you know, parenting is is the simultaneously like probably the most challenging thing you can do and but also the most rewarding thing you can do and to really keep uh, you know finger on your own pulse keep tabs on how you're doing and and give yourself lots of support and encouragement um it's really really important so we talk about just be really really kind to yourself as you as you're going through this process yeah thank you doctor yeah that's been a really great conversation today and and i've i've certainly learned a lot as, as a parent and uh i'm definitely going to check out your your program encourage other people to do as well where, where can they where can they find out more oh i have a website it's uh, www.the7tools.com and it's just the number seven in the title great and, and we'll have the link to that in the show notes too and the class is called strong foundations wonderful well thank you so much uh dr stephen hall for being on the show today well thank you jerry i really appreciate you doing this podcast and getting this information out to the world.